0: This is Dialogue
1: Gospel Sunday Study. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Study. Today, 24th of July, 2022. Um, We're here today with, uh, in particular, with Suzanne Midori-Hanna, who will be our teacher, uh, working with, I think on the Come Follow Me program, the scriptures are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We're now to the part of the Old Testament where the Hebrew Bible, where we put lots of prophets together in or lots of books together in one lesson. But I understand uh, looking ahead that we'll mostly be talking about Esther today. Um, We are also joined by uh, myself, Chris Kimball and Michael Austin as members of the Dialogue Foundation board. Um, We are recording on Zoom and uh, should be uh, also displayed on Facebook Live. Note that we are recording and, uh, and, and comments and, uh, and the questions will be, uh, will be on the recording. We post the recording uh, later today or tomorrow um, that will show up in, in several ways, both on the dialogue page on, in the internet and uh, in YouTube. Uh, As uh, I'm going to give an NPR style introduction and and, uh, pitch for dialogue, we have now put all 55 years of dialogue online, uh, including new issues as they come out. We rely on subscriptions and contributions. We're working to build our capital fund so that we can continue into the future. Uh, We ask and pitch and please support dialogue. Now, uh, for today's lesson, I, I'm going to, we're going to start with music and opening prayer, uh, but let me uh, welcome and introduce uh, the, the people who are, have, have, uh, have joined us today. Suzanne Midori-Hanna is our teacher today. She is from Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's a licensed clinician, professor, researcher, and author in marriage and family therapy. She was educated at BYU and the University of Utah. Professionally, her mission is to provide underserved groups with cutting-edge, evidence-based, relationship-centered health and mental health care. Her textbooks have been translated into Spanish, Chinese, Hungarian, and now Korean in process. She's a longtime Dialogue subscriber and uses Dialogue to, uh, in her work. She has taught Sunday school for those who are neurodiverse and has served in various presidencies in Utah, Wisconsin, and Kentucky. Uh, as a longtime lifetime member she is of the church, she uh, says culture is an organizing dimension for her faith. Given an upbringing as the only daughter in a biracial, mixed religious, blended family with a Down syndrome brother, a Croatian uncle, African-American nannies, Native American friends, and the world's best Mexican food. She's currently working on three books, one to guide faith communities toward trauma recovery practices, another about radicalization and violence prevention, and a third with Pumsa Sikishe working on that name, entitled uh, Gobofango, Lost Son of Cosa Warriors, which was presented at the 2021 Mormon History Association. She's currently a part-time professor for Capella University and lives in Moreno Valley, California. We also have with us uh, Pumza Sipishe, who is the executive director for Ebony Equality, or E-Equity, a consulting company in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, she has studied business entrepreneurship at Ensign College and Utah Valley University, and uh, fashion and luxury brand management from Bocconi University. She has worked in marketing for companies in Utah and California and sales and global logistics for top German companies. Her team has experience working in transformation strategies for top South African companies. Uh, As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, she has served in a number of capacities as state Young Women Presidency as a primary president and Public Relations Specialist. Her mother helped translate the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and the 2019 Temple Ceremony in the Kosa language. Pumza represented her review of Gobo Fango, lost son of kosa warriors at the 2021 Mormon History, His, History Association. And for our closing prayer uh, and comments, uh, we have also with us Jen Lee Smith. Uh, Jen was born Mormon in Taiwan and raised partly in rural Utah and the California ethnoburbs. She studied the social scientists at BYU and UCLA and is a PhD dropout, a mother to three gorgeous kids, a partner to one beautiful human, a filmmaker who identifies as queer and non-religious spiritual. She is co-editor of the newly released book, I Spoke to You with Silence, Essays from Queer Mormons of Marginalized Genders published just the other day by the University of Utah Press. She was the executive producer of the film Jane and Emma about Jane Manning James, and is currently producing a film about indigenous cultural fire practices and co-directing another film on Asian American basketball. Those are the people with us today and we are excited about their presence and uh, contribution. Uh, We'll begin with music. Um, uh, a piece called indodana by the Delo- i can't say this uh, delova youth choir um, and then opening prayer by pumza sikise
2: how away to osezoleni sitibana ngeleqesha esingabantwana bakho emini sikubulela Kwa Yesu Krestu, kwa wasifela Sikubulela, kwa kubasi tibene, kenwa evangeli yako apa. Sibulela bao, kamazwi, esi wafundayo, kwa sifunda ipa ipile. Kamazwi asikwalela, kwa masenze ndonu kuze, sibuyele kuwe Bao, siyakwela uambena hati, as imini, ucitrine, siyacela bao, umoya wakho uche, ube koti, asimamela, isifundo, siga susen, inklisyose zikwazi, ukufunda inklisyose tu zikwazi, ugofunda, umtetowako, siabula la Gazo zonke in the kelelo or sinegazoan. Siaza kuwe zivela kuwe Bawa siabolela. Gobasi a quasi. Gaziminizin kuwe jongi kue. Siaza uba uko. Uzako citrina. Uzako si Ah. Siambasi si Sibe citrina nguwe Citrella bawa uguba. Sikumule, when an onyana wako. Kamakasha onke. Siazo kuba, yonge in sienzayo. sea nguwe zayo. Situnya and wako o yungle. Zonga is Zindobao says Kristo. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Bumsa, thank you. Thank you, for, and thank you for joining us. I'm aware that you're you're joining us from South Africa, and I'm aware of the time zone differences. It's uh, um, great to have you with us. Um, we, I, I should have mentioned uh, before I turn the time over. That that's the traditional phrase, isn't it? Uh, that that music in Dodana is a traditional Torquosa Easter hymn, um, and. Uh, since being introduced to it, it's, I've added it to my my uh, cycle of music. Suzanne, um, you're on.
3: Okay, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Pumza, my dear. I love you. I appreciate your spirit and uh, feel strengthened by your prayer. So, good morning. Um, in California, it's morning, and um, I always start all of my presentations with a moment where I honor my ancestors. Now, I realize today is Pioneer Day in Utah. Um, Down here in California, uh, I would like to um, honor one of my Japanese ancestors before we get going. Um, My great uncle, Manji Hanaoka, came to America and was born in Midori, Japan in 1884. He came here around 1918 to seeking a better life for his family. In 1943, he was sent to the internment camp in Jerome, Arkansas. On the way, his daughter gave birth to my cousin in the Fresno Detention Center, hospital number two. In 1943, Still there at the camp, he died in Arkansas from a stroke. He was only 59. In this life, he had no idea that in two more years, his older brother, Hiyumatsu, and his family would also die. But instead, in the Hiroshima bomb blast, he also wasn't here uh, to be able to imagine his great granddaughter, Lisa Masako Hasegawa, who would go to Harvard, become a voice for Asian public mental, excuse me, Asian public health, and work in Washington, DC, where she would be invited to the White House many times for briefings and other events. On this day of honoring my ancestors, I think there's something poetic about Lisa being welcomed to the same White House that sent her great-grandfather, to the camps 60 years ago. It was Lisa who found me a ticket to President Obama's second inauguration. It was Lisa who took me to the National Cathedral for the inaugural prayer service where we watched a children's choir sing their hearts out for the president and first lady. And so today I honor my uncle Manji Hanaoka a humble Japanese farmer, for giving me the chance of a lifetime through his great-granddaughter. I hope today each of you will also find a moment to honor a special ancestor of your own. Thank you for that. So today, Sacred Energy, Zion, and the Book of Esther. Um, Three topics dear to my heart and that represent um, somewhat of a transition Uh, that I've made through the years, both personally and professionally, um, as I've wrestled with issues of gender in my clinical work, as well as in our LDS culture. The the introduction that I had uh, to um, gender issues in the church really came from Margaret Toscano's work in Dialogue in 1988. Which I will get to in a minute, but on the way there, let me just um, give you a few things to think about. From Albert Einstein, intuitive mind is a gift; rational mind is the faithful servant. We've created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. Margaret Starboard, bird, excuse me, has said we must find ways to heal the wounded feminine. In our own hearts and souls and efgar jameson talks about in his classes on eastern religion um, how the tradition of the feminine aspect of divinity has a long history through all kinds of places in the world Uh, japan china um, tibet india africa egypt uh, the middle east um, greece rome and uh, scandinavia North America, all over the world, there has been some aspect of uh, uh, the uh, divine feminine. The Eastern religious traditions have for millennia observed that if we fail to show respect for the female principle within and without, the results can be terribly destructive. So what happened to me was during my clinical work, I began to see that rigid gender roles that I perceived to have come from cultural socialization could really get in the way of marital dynamics and resolution of marital conflict. And so once I got exposed to Margaret Toscano's work um, in 1988, I began to think the name of her article, which we will get to, is called Beyond Matriarchy and Beyond Patriarchy. Then I began to see that there was a way that we could start talking about these things that was much more fluid and much, more, and much less rigid. And so when I had the chance to teach at a Christian college um, where it was uh, free reign to go ahead and mention issues of religion, um, we, got, we got to um, the section in my human sexual development class on gender roles, sexuality and gender and socialization. So I started giving my students this assignment to discuss, was Jesus androgynous? And if so, why or why not? And I had ministers in my classes then and um, evangelical Christian students, and and um, they loved this particular section because it gave them a chance to think outside the box. And uh, we had some great discussions. Um, the preponderance of bias was in favor of, uh, in that audience, in favor of Jesus, you know, uh, being androgynous or being thought of as androgynous. So then I, I went on to look at how to continue to challenge uh, my students. And even as far back as when I was a grad assistant at BYU in my um, child development class, I thought I'd be clever by asking those students, what would you do if one, if, if one of your sons came to you and asked if he could enroll and take ballet lessons? And back then, of course, we were still rigidly uh, conforming to lots of gender roles. And so young man raised his hand. He turned out to be a freshman football player at BYU. And he said, well, um, Lavelle Edwards has already asked us um, to sign up for a ballet class. So, if we ever wondered about the secret to Lavelle Edwards' success, <laughs> perhaps in fact uh, this is was one of his uh, many secrets and gifts. So, the Toscano article that talks about beyond matriarchy and beyond patriarchy, um, she applies Jungian um, theory to the idea of sex role uh, development and. Uh, and gender socialization you know, in society. And so she has some, I think, very insightful things to say. Um, looking at Jungian, there's an integrated phase for um, sex role development. And she says, this is the most demanding stage because it cannot be achieved in isolation, but must be worked out in relation to the outer self, the inner self, the outer reality, the inner reality, other people, and God. The integrative phase of wholeness where all that was lost is reclaimed, particularly the feminine. Christ, as a double-edged sword, is paradoxical. Though he was male, he assumed the role of a female to give birth to a new creation through the blood he shed in Gethsemane and on the cross. Though Christ was God, he became human to reveal that true love is in relationship. It takes a heroic leap to get beyond matriarchy and beyond patriarchy to a stage of integration and individuation. And then she says, and though the emergence of such a theology does not appear imminent, this is 1988, the rumor of it cannot be denied. So armed with Margaret Toscano, and I won't hold her responsible for anything else that I (laughs) might say today, uh, then I've spent many years thinking about the balancing of these energies and particularly the stumbling blocks that come about in the Western world because we have westernized, psychologized renditions and descriptions of femaleness, maleness, female energy, male energy, and we lapse into this language that sounds like personality traits or um, something more static. However, if we can think outside the box, work our way toward Eastern and Middle Eastern types of thinking, then I believe we come closer to Zion because in those traditions, feminine and masculine energies are not gender-specific. They're a source of balance. And in our tradition, Zion is a condition of the heart in community with other people. Certainly, the Book of Esther, for all that it may or may not be, is a really super great illustration of balancing energies and how this can become a pathway uh, to Zion. So, let's move out of our westernized thinking about these things, if if I might um, invite you to do so, and um, as well as any gender stereotypes that continue to linger even after Title IX uh, in um, uh, the U.S. And and I might say just as a shout out because of my work in neuroscience. Shout out to the um Eastern Hemisphere, as it were back when I was a young psychotherapist, we thought of all kinds of um, aspects of of uh you know that culture uh, as sometimes being trivial um for instance, anything that had to do with holistic sort of um, uh energy, crystals, whatever, we would write off as new age. And of course, for those of us with, with PhDs, uh, we would never want to stoop to the level of new age, right? And um, and so in all the pride that existed in uh, mental health professions back when I was young, then we would sort of poo-poo some of this stuff. So who has the last laugh? MIT Harvard, other really um, uh, important places are doing clinical trials in yoga, meditation and and even in medicine, for instance, there's study on meditation and leukemia symptoms. Um, so all of a sudden, the West has discovered the East, and um, we're developing we meaning the field of mental health in the western world is developing a much more holistic approach to um, helping people with their distress so i invite you out of our westernized psychologized uh, clinicalized labeled world into this world where we look at energy elements the cycles of nature complementarity polarity let me just whisper Uh, Since uh, Margaret talked about the rumor, you know, that uh, still exists, uh, let's just look at at a little bit of our scripture. All things, you know, there must needs be oppositions, okay, polarities in all things. Um, All things must needs be a, a composite in one. And so light and dark. And, and so so these ideas see that we consider to be more uh, holistic, more balanced um, and um, helping people develop greater wholeness internally uh, really then speak to our um, own gospel traditions uh, related to uh, balance, wholeness, that kind of thing. So let's look again just at words to get you to keep, keep you into this other mode. Uh, What are some elements and cycles? Water and fire, earth and sky, moon and sun, nighttime and daytime, feminine and masculine energies, slow, fast, soft, hard, flexible, solid. Uh, The reason why I'm taking these with only the slash is because, again, if it's a composite in one, which is what our wisdom traditions in the East would suggest, then slow and fast are one entity, and they need each other in various ways. Um, we can be flexible and develop that kind of flexibility of spirit and the flexibility of energy, if I can use those words, um, to to be able then, you know, to develop the sense of balance and the sense of wholeness. Okay, and then in the Taoist uh, tradition, we do have, you know, what most people have heard of as the yin and the yang. Uh, And so light and dark high and low, hot and cold, life and death. And some examples of that are, are the sunny and the shady. And, you know, when I was preparing this, it took me a while to dig through references where they didn't use westernized language uh, because the westernized language is uh, really much more critical, categorical, and, um, and does not create this sense of fluidity and the sense of uh, complementarity. So, for instance, the ocean has waves that are up and down um, in this beautiful um, farm in uh, Idaho, outside of Preston, Idaho, sunny and shady. And um, this all has to do with the relationships between, you know, sun and mountains and high levels and low levels um the cycles of life go from one polarity to another seeds sprout produce life mature die back in the wintertime how often do we have examples from the parables of the uh the savior that are rooted in the natural world in all kinds of ways that wasn't just because of ancient sensibility uh, And just because that happened to be his context at the time, is there not a message to us about adopting an ancient sensibility? So let's just look again. I I went through and sifted out as many westernized words as I possibly could sift out. Let's look at the yin, which is internal energy. Um, And some of the principles that are involved uh, are, you know, these ideas of emotion and intuition as messengers to ourselves. Um, The yin is more flowing and dynamic, consequently more unpredictable, um, guided by the heart. And there's a real importance about expression and creation, Um, letting go of the old for the new. And I have an interesting case study in a few minutes about that. Um, and some examples then have to do with the fact that creativity may just spring out of thin air. Uh, we will see this in the story of Esther, for instance. Um, and um, how a river, you know, has many contrasting elements to it. Slow, fast, white water, you know, um, calm pools. Uh, and then because of that guidance from the heart the yin provides more power for facing our inner demons. Um, And so looking at individual possibilities, looking behind the scenes, between the scenes, under the scenes, um, also illustrated in uh, the the story of Esther. um, And then certainly what, what is a universal process in not only mortality, but during the lifespan we have death rebirth and transformation ongoing throughout the entire mortal lifespan Um, and so these are some of the cycles um, and some of the processes that are associated more with internal energy the yin then the yang is focused more external energy action structure rules clarity being protective Um, so these are folks Um, There's a sense of go and get, a sense of being predictable, um, being able to take rules and establish some order, logic, um, having a goal and pursuing that in a direct way, um, being protective and being able to switch, you know, shift positions uh, when they fit uh, within a set of values. And we'll see these played out in the story of Esther as well. And so that's why the yin and the yang, of course, go together. It's not one or the other, but how much balance and fluidity and integration can we achieve it, You know, uh, within the inner self? Okay, if I could have my discussants uh, come on board here now, I'm going to... Uh, Stop sharing for a minute to see if um, um, we have any thoughts from uh, Jen or Pumza uh, related to these energies, related to these, these ideas of wholeness, balance, and um, any critique, reflections that you might have are welcome.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can go. Oh, Punza, were you going to say something? No, go ahead, Jen. Um, I was just about to write in the chat. chat I, was saying, I was saying this is very well said. And um, also important to remember that, because even with even though we do um, have the and they do look and appear as binaries, it, it doesn't mean that we necessarily must live according to binaries but you you said it you said you know like i think the goal for us is to live in fluidity to recognize that we can hold space um for these dichotomies they don't negate each other right the masculine the feminine do not are not enemies they are not othering each other that's not the reason why they exist um the the yin and the yang the feminine, the masculine, the nighttime and daytime, and what you say about um, <clears throat> the light and the dark, um, we, are, we can allow them to coexist within us. Uh, and um, I just lost my train of thought actually. <laughs> um, but anyway, I guess the point being, um, nothing really on this planet exists in binaries in dichotomies. But it is helpful to have them. These are good tools, um, and to to recognize that we are we are fluid, like everything else around us. Like for for me,
2: um, I guess this um, this feels like I hear I hear this, and I kind of understand it because i've read about it and so it's really good to be reminded about it um and then the third thing is that even here i'm sitting in Africa and
3: you might just has you might been just, westernized just, re- so, just yeah. repeat that one yeah. little part. You cut out for a minute. Just repeat uh, uh, the last sen- the last uh, sentence that you said.
2: Okay. I said that I'm sitting in Africa, but essentially the way that I think about these things has been influenced by the West. So, and, but the thing of, but the good thing is that I to our ancient beliefs that do talk about, that teach us about that balance between the feminine and the masculine and how our societies functioned better when those were respected. So um, so it's really good that I'm sitting here in a Sunday school that is is to embrace so let me, let me just
3: ask you, Humza, so are you saying that, say, in South Africa, um, you all are migrating away from what might have been more uh, what I'm going to call uh, wisdom tradition uh, because of the westernization? Pardon, okay, just repeat that question again. Are we moving okay. away from? OK, so um, I was just curious whether you were saying that um, there's sort of a, uh, a little bit of a drift away, even in, say, South Africa, from what might have been wisdom traditions because of the westernization of uh, the country. I'm going to call it contamination from the West.
2: I think we. I think that happened from the ninth century when the missionaries came. So where essentially most of us did lose that wisdom tradition and essentially we were absolutely, most of us were detached from our wisdom traditions because of Western contamination. And but now, now in the 21st century, many south africans i won't talk about the rest of africa but many black south africans are waking up and re-embracing those wisdom traditions and listening and then and that we essentially it is grounding us better going back to that wisdom tradition and like just to give an example there's always been um there's always been this um belief that says that black African men do not respect women. They look down upon women. And that's why um, they essentially, most, most of them abuse women. But when I look at the closer tradition where I come from, m- m- fathers celebrated having daughters because those daughters, when they got married, they would, there would be a dowry that would be paid. And so they celebrated like, yay for me. And once that daughter is married and the husband abuses her, she had the choice to go back home and not accept that abuse. And then that husband would have to co- would have to come to her home and face her father and all the males in her family and account to how he treated her. That was our tradition. But many, if you were to stop an average closer man today, he is not aware of that tradition. So now we are embracing.
3: Wonderful. Wonderful. Oh. So, so that's an, an example then of the the Western contamination and then the restoration of things and what Jen was saying about binary. Um, see uh, that's come about through contamination, not from the original um, ideas that all these energies reside within us and that it's, yeah. developmental stages of human growth to be able to reach that point that Margaret talked about. That's integration. Yes, Jen.
0: I, I want to problematize this idea that of, of Western contamination um, just a little bit, because again, that's going back to othering. Um, and yeah. I think it lives within us, right? All of us, regardless of where we're from. I mean, Western ideologies has, has has their origins right if you look at one individual person who lives in western europe you and you trace their generations back seven seven generations you'll see there's a lot of trauma there uh, that might be unresolved right speaking of trauma and yes. that that trauma continues to escalate and 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 and, and reverberate and so when they entered This it's the ideology, right? Of fear, the ideology of fear, which is in in an imbalance, which I think maybe can be covered by the yang. I'm not an expert on Taoism, but it's the the ego, right? That we we're constantly in in um, need of balancing that ego, that need to survive, right, in us, but also the need, true, um, um, the need to remember our origin right remember that we come from the earth that we come from love um and that just kind of gets escalated and I think it happened when they um oh gosh even in Christianity right I I could go on and on but like let's just like look at like points in history where the ego is winning or the fear is winning um and then for a number of different reasons um, they have the power, the technology to go and take over other civilizations and other cultures. And yet, um, and this is why I'm so grateful for indigenous studies, is because we all at some point in our ancestry, we come from that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So whether, wherever we are on this planet, there was a point in time where we remembered how to live in harmony with each yes. other, yes. in community with each other, and um and so we don't need to give fuel to the othering. True. I'm seeing this, you know, over and over again, like the fear of, uh, of, pe- of people in this country, especially white men, feeling very attacked. Yes. Um, because we are kind of using that same uh, tool of fear against them. <laughs> um, and so ideally we remove that um, imbalance. We, ideally we, we go into... Uh, the, the more like you said there is an imbalance there's less of that feminine energy now and um, we all have the capacity to tap into it regardless of what we look like regardless of what body shell that we inhabit we all right. have the capacity right to right to take that energy and, and use it um, n- not using that that masculine energy against the hyper masculine force i mean Correct. that's not going to achieve anything
3: right right Well, thank you for calling me out on that. I appreciate it greatly because um, in fact, then um, see the the narrative. I am guilty of moving pretty quickly into a more polarizing type of narrative. And um, so appreciate so much. Guilty is charged. And and this is good, you know, for people to keep me honest. This is um, why we, uh, why we have multiple voices today. I love it.
0: I'm always guilty of, of
3: binary thinking. <laughs> I mean, we're trained, right? Well, again, we, we are, we are. So, thank you, thank you. The dialogue is precious to me that way.
1: Suzanne, could I? I, I no, I'm going to invite myself into that comment. Do go ahead, Chris. That uh, for my own experience, I see people and myself finding it um, ego satisfying, but also easier and that may be the point easier to to pick masculine or pick feminine or pick the uh, you know the tide coming in or the tide coming out and and take an extreme take one pole of the discussion I find that um, fluidity that integration are hard work it is and that's the simple point I think it's I think what you're where you're headed, or what you're talking about, is asking of us more than taking um, any, any one poll. The integration is, is real work.
3: True, very true. And uh, not for the faint of heart many times, you know. Um, well, so Zion, why did I want to go towards Zion with all of this? Um, actually in my darkest moments, uh, from a faith perspective, Zion has kind of been the iron rod for me. Zion is what I cling to the hope of Zion and what can I do to promote Zion. Um, and, uh, that brings me out of my, uh, funk every time. So there's only a couple of problems with Zion and that is in LDS, uh, doctrine, there's a lot of confusion. It's complicated. Um, the term appears all through the standard works, um, but each of those has its own purpose, its history, its translators, its context. Um, and so we hear Zion for this and Zion for that. And, and um, it's kind of a jumble um, out there in the, the standard works of the LDS church. Um, so is it the chosen people is it a location? If so, where, who, when, what? Um, and uh, the topical guide, you know, goes through just a, a lot of different places where the word appears. And probably uh, the most uh, dated uh, telling one is a reference to Zion being probably <laughs> in North and South America. So don't worry, Pumza. you're going to have another chance to comment here (laughs) pretty soon. But uh, um, so it's complicated when we look, you know, at our um, canonized, uh, you know, bodies of work. However, if we look, somebody like the late Hugh Nibley in his book on Zion, uh, then, you know, he reduces it down and looks specifically at, these main points that um, come out of both, you know, the city of Enoch as well as uh, then looking at um, within Zion, you know, what is it? So Zion is the pure in heart, but he says in this chapter, not individually, it's got to be collectively. And so again, another sort of binary, um, we certainly have to start with ourselves to develop. Uh, you know, uh, and to become pure in heart, on the one hand, on the other hand, he says Zion is about coming together then and forming a community, a society, an environment that is pure in heart and um, so you know he mentions it as the eternal order, we know about uh, the city of Enoch, one heart, one mind, and no poor, um, along those lines, then charity. Um, is considered the pure love of Christ. So the pure in heart have the pure love of Christ. And then he makes probably what is a characteristic uh, controversial connection because it's, uh, Nibley was such a social critic in so many ways while he was alive. So he points to Jacob too. I'm not going to read all um, four of these verses, but um, what he does say then when he's talking about um, um you know riches and making progress in the kingdom of god then in verse 19 once you've obtained a hope in christ now that would be repentance and accepting you know an atonement for uh sins then ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them and according to the verse ye will seek them not you can or you might you will Seek these riches for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, and to liberate the captive, to administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. So in Nibley's sort of characteristic way, which he was known for when he was alive, then he's saying the only reason the Lord allows people to have money, <laughs> this this is his uh, way of stating it in his book, is so that they can help the poor. and. Um, and that opens up, you know, all kinds of cans of worms, you know, for people to struggle with. Um, uh, and um, uh, that then, you know, becomes part of this environment, you know, that we have this environment of seeking, um, you know, to uh, uh, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, you know, help other people uh, and to share what we have. And I notice that there aren't any words in here like um, the worthy poor or self-reliance, or any of those kinds of concepts at this point in time. It's just sort of uncategorical in, in Jacob. And, and, of course, Hugh, Hugh then, you know, Nibley takes it to that extent. So I would like to know um, um, what each of you might have to say about just this whole concept of Zion, about this, you know, perfected um, community, um, about how it may start, um, as something where we work on individually, like speaking of balancing energies, that sort of thing. But if it's only that and it stops with the individual, then Nibley says, it's not Zion. Not unless you have a community and a, you know, and a, a collection of people. So um, what, um, what say ye uh, about uh, some of that? Pumza, I'd love to hear from you. Yes, Pumza. Since you're not in North or South America, and that just happened to be one little <laughs> notation in the topical guide.
2: <laughs> yeah, but that's fine.
3: Um, so someone said, asked
2: if I could keep my camera off. Maybe my audio would be better. I don't know if people can hear
3: me better now. It sounds good. Maybe the connection. Me? Maybe it'll stay a little more stable.
2: Okay. All right, so what are my thoughts on Zion? Um, okay, so I feel that first you need to work within yourself using that yin and yang, because if you are not balanced, then you are not able to essentially be part of that Zion, of building the Zion with, a, with, a, with, a, uh, with the community. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that we even struggle um, with each other at church because we haven't really worked on ourselves, um creating that Zion within ourselves. So now when we take that person that still needs to be worked on, developed on, uh, we struggle because we're reflecting, we might see what we still struggle with within ourselves reflected on others. So for me, I feel that it is very critical, even if it's like an incremental um progression really of just doing those things that you become the best person, the best version of yourself. Yeah, we are human. We'll never be perfect in this world. But I think if we just work on it, then we're able to help build that Zion. And we're going to be even more compassionate when we see others still struggle. And we see that person is also trying instead of like essentially throwing them under the bus. So, and as a South African with a beautiful South Africa, I feel that I am in Zion anyway.
3: <laughs> so <laughs> well said, well said. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I love that so much.
0: Um, and I do think that um, uh, you're absolutely right about going within. And um, I can't cite the first and second commandments Um, but i know i feel like the 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 spirit of it was you know to love to love god and and christ and to love our neighbors um but doing so as we love ourselves and so that order of importance and now having done some like um trauma studies myself like you really have nothing to give if you have nothing within you and maybe your guardians also had nothing within them, so they also couldn't give you anything to, with which to love yourself with. So you've got to love yourself first. You got to feel that, feel, know who you are, know your own sense of belonging within yourself, and then you can love your community. And we all, we all need that. I mean, in, in every religion, you find that these are the basics. You love yourself. You get to know yourself. And then you have a connection with your divine, and then what we really need as humans really is community. Mm-hmm. We really need that we need that we need each other to help uh, um, to help us learn how to love love ourselves better and to love each other better um, I remember reading world. these uh, this, these comments here you know about um, uh the paradoxes right um non-dualism consistent with non-dualism zion must be full of polarities yes it cannot be a monolithic community it must be full of of diversity and fluidity right and we need to make room for each other constantly and that means change and i think that now we're again we're battling against the fear of change battling against like that but if we just get here we will be safe forever this idea right like I just need to get here whatever here is and I will survive and I will survive so well but it will be at the cost of other people that that's that's rooted in fear we yeah
3: we if we can allow for a for a greater community a greater Zion yes. that will only enrich us and what you describe is really the legacy of intergenerational trauma within the LDS community mm-hmm. um, Anyone who has pioneer ancestors, myself included, um, has the effects of intergenerational trauma in some sort of way. And um, so for us to take our woundedness and to work on ourselves so that we can then make a safe safe space, not only for ourselves, but for others who are wounded, um, then uh, to me, that, that uh helps us to take these polarities and and calm the waters of trauma down um, so that we can love ourselves and love others.
1: Suzanne, one of the aspects of talking about Zion that I, we sometimes skip um, because it's so fundamental. It's so obvious is that it, every image I know uh, is reflects a now a, a this world uh, my neighbors um our community they the the we 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 negate we put away the idea of uh kicking the can off to eternities or to heaven and talk about now and present and and um, uh, real people in real time I think that 's critical to my my every time I think about Zion that's that's an underlying fact
3: yes yes well as we as we um transition into talking about the story of Esther um the uh, the reason that I wanted to do Esther is to do a shout out to the Persian community um I've been interested for about 10 years in the fact that in Matthew It says the wise men were followers of Zoroaster. And I thought that was like just such an interesting sort of uh, thing to slip in there. Well, Zoroaster doesn't appear in the topical guide. (laughs) Zoroaster also does not appear in the dictionary, on the Bible dictionary, only in Matthew. And so I began to sort of research this. And I'm happy to say that in our LDS Bible dictionary, there's a very complementary little commentary on the wise men from the east they just don't mention zoroaster i guess we don't talk about bruno sometimes so they they don't use the word they don't use the word zoroaster but what they say is um, that these were holy men of god that they were in tune with the spirit that uh, you know to follow the star and to bring gifts to the christ child uh, they had to be in tune uh, and that for people who might cast them off as astrologers, the dictionary says that's a gross rep- misrepresentation because they were prophets who had the gift of prophecy and were able then to come and provide their gifts to the Christ child. So hooray for the LDS uh, dictionary if you look under wise men from the East. And so the shout out to Persia, which is where Esther is, it's because about six months ago, I started trying to go about once a month down to the Persian branch that's in the Newport Beach stake here in Southern California. And the first time I walked into the door of the Persian branch with about 20 of the sweetest people you ever want to meet on the earth, um, I felt like I had come to Zion. And uh, they have uh, headsets to translate for those of us that are English. But the services are held in Persian and um, and so I got interested in Zoroastrianism um, as sort of that backdrop to how did these people become so good and then to be so ready you know for um, something like you know Mormonism and so here's just a little bit about Zoroastrianism. Uh, the purpose in life for somebody that follows Zoroaster is to bring happiness into the world which contributes to the cosmic battle against evil. So where we might talk about good and evil, and they do too, all of a sudden happiness is the anecdote to evil. And I find find that interesting. And they have this phrase, and people in my branch have mentioned this phrase, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Um, Practicing charity keeps one's soul aligned with Asha, and that's uh, the monotheistic God, and thus spreads happiness. So charity spreads happiness. This is the duty of both men and women alike, charity. Uh, And then being good for the sake of goodness and without the hope of reward. I thought that was like just um, really a spectacular conceptualization of what Zion would be. Um, we're, we're beyond reward, you know, beyond patriarchy, beyond matriarchy, beyond the reward system. I believe Steve Young in his new book calls it something like merit badge theology, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and so um, I've already actually explained the LDS Bible Dictionary uh, to you as a, as a prelude to this. But uh, Zoroastrianism then uh, was the state religion in the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire, in its heyday then, was in fact um, the first, according to National Geographic, the first superpower in the world. It went from India all the way over to parts of Greece and down into uh, um, Africa, into Egypt and Libya. Uh, and if you look in the LDS um, uh, bible in the the maps in the back i believe it's map number 12 shows you the persian empire and this was then the empire within which esther rose as an orphaned jewish girl so <clears throat> one of the controversies is who wrote the book is it fact or fiction and you know we probably don't even need to talk about that given that we're in the old testament anyway um, however according to various jewish sources Um, There's some migration around the idea that um, it was probably Mordecai and maybe edited with Esther. And then later, there were a group of people called the Men of the Great Assembly. And these were 120 prophets and sages. Maybe it was their correlation committee, an ancient, (laughs) I shouldn't even use that term, huh? Um, uh, That uh, then kind of oversaw the holy writings for the Jews during that second, you know, temple uh, era. Um so the story of Esther has also been crit- criticized because there is some needless violence, um, certainly far from the spirit of Zion. Uh, and um, there is this turn of events, which then leads to some violence that's perpetrated by the Jews who are actually saved from genocide. So they sort of switch places. Sounds a little familiar, like in the Book of Mormon, you know, going back and forth too. Um, so. Um, however, it is the only book in the Bible that does not mention God, and people are always wondering why that's the case. Um, some of the Jewish sources say that, um, given that the Jews had been coexisting in Persia, you know they had been um, taken in, you know, into captivity, and notwithstanding the fact that Cyrus the Great allowed for, um, uh, you know, religious freedom, uh, nevertheless they were still embedded um, in. Um, Persia and Persian culture. And um, there was some thought that uh, they might then um, have left out the word God all the way through uh, because they didn't want it replaced in the books of Persian history with the Persian God, with the name of the Persian God rather than their God. So then they just left it out altogether in order to not sully, you know, the name of the uh, great eternal. Uh, And certainly LDS audiences can sort of relate to the idea that they were afraid they might be misunderstood or that the information might be taken uh, because they were being, you know, still held in captivity, if we want to use that word, um, uh, by the Persian Empire. So I'm going to give you a cliff's notes of the plot so that we can then go into the yin and yang of Esther's story. That's where we're headed here. So Persia was the first superpower under Cyrus the Great. Um, he allowed religious freedom. And under him, then the Jews went back and started building the temple. How did that go? Well, if we, if we do look at Ezra, Nehemiah, which we aren't going to do today, <laughs> we can see that it was like, you know, sort of a nip-and-tuck experience. <laughs> um, and so they were, you know, taking a few steps forward and a few steps back. And, and, uh, but it was, you know, um, in process, shall we say um and uh, certainly the wise men didn't come along until way later um zoroastrianism uh began you know around 1000 BC and Cyrus the great was around 500 BC and um um and um, so we learn that he's a, that then after Cyrus several dynasties later the current king with Esther is kind of a nasty guy He banishes his wife, who refuses to be his trophy wife, my words, obviously, and holds a beauty pageant from which Esther then, secretly a Jew, emerges as the next queen. So we have kind of this, you know, overlap between the secular and religious, um, and she, you know, kept her identity um, a secret. So um, her cousin... Mordecai the Jew, and very often you see the phrase, Mordecai the Jew, Mordecai the Jew. Sometimes they say Mordecai, but I think there's a cultural aspect to this phrase, you know, Mordecai the Jew, um, Queen Esther, once she's, you know, crowned the queen. And that is when you've been a marginalized group and you've been held in captivity and uh, been oppressed by a majority culture, then you are conscious of your lowly status. And any sort of break in that glass ceiling um, with the oppressing uh, culture then is like a breath of fresh air. And so all of a sudden, Mordecai and Esther, if we put this cultural, you know, kind of uh, lens on it, they are bringing some honor um, to their people. And they have come along and um, and actually then uh, saved the Jews from genocide Uh, which we'll get there. But on the way there, so Esther becomes queen after winning the beauty pageant. Um, Mordecai finds out about a plot to assassinate the king. And again, you know, he's kind of a nasty guy, uh, but um, love your enemies, so to speak. Mordecai goes and tips the king off. Um, He then, you know, comes into the good graces of the king And uh, But then people in the king's court and one of the fellows that's Haman, who is kind of the king's, you know, right-hand man, um, he's unhappy because Mordecai um, observes his religion and he won't worship Haman. He won't bow down to him. He only, you know, worships God. And so then Haman gets into wanting to create genocide for the Jews as a revenge on um, uh, Mordecai. And um, so, so now um, word gets out that there's this decree that's going to come due where all the Jews in the Persian, and see, if we didn't look at the map and see that, you know, was this also the Jews in Jerusalem who were trying to rebuild the temple? Uh, it was this decree, and they talk about how the Pony Express and everything went all through <laughs> all the Persian Empire, decreeing that all the Jews should be killed on a certain day, and they rolled the dice, and that's what purr is, is is uh, rolling the dice. So Mordecai, in his tremendous distress, goes to Esther and says, you got to do something. You know, you're you're in the inner court. But hey, the rule is no one approaches the king without fear of death if the king has not invited. So if you don't have an appointment that was made by the king, if you show up in his court, you can be killed. I guess that's their brand of, you know, secret service agents. And um, so Esther said, I can't go to the king, even though I'm queen. Uh, he could kill me if I just show up unannounced. And um, uh, and so they labor around this. And I'll get into the yin and yang of this in a minute. Uh, but um, as it turns out then, <clears throat> between Mordecai having saved, you know, that assassination plot, And then um, Esther uh, thinking through what she could do to be helpful to her people. She's got her cousin Mordecai who was like a father to her. He's torn his garments and preparing for death. That's how serious it was. That's how grave the danger was. And yet she also could be killed. Um, Of course, nobody knows that she's Jewish yet either. Um, And so what happens is, a wonderful blend of yin and yang that uh, we'll go through in the next slides that brings the turn of events. Um, Esther reveals her true identity as a Jew, um, is, you know, is able to then have Haman punished for his evil designs. Um, and you see some chiasmus going on in the story that people talk about from a literary you know, perspective. Um, and so all of this gets reversed over time. The decree for genocide changes into a decree to a decree that Jews can defend themselves against unjust oppressors, um, and um, uh, and then these two Jewish cousins um, are lifted up into this high status with the king in that particular Persian Empire. So that's where the Jewish holiday of Purim um, is, uh, you know, stated to have come from, and. Um, this is my story, and I'm sticking to it. Right? Okay. So here's the yin and yang in that in that story that I think is really a holy balance. All right. So the laws prohibit even the queen from approaching the king, and so you have all these rules. So, you know, it was a very rule governed and predictable structure. That's yang. Uh, the king has already emphasized uh, his power by banishing his uh, earlier wife who refused to be a, a trophy uh, wife, my words, um, that's Yang as well. So we've got a lot of Yang flowing along here now. Um, and um, uh, we're going to see Yang come about for good in a minute. Esther's fearing death. And um, as Mordecai goes to her and says, you got to do something to help, then she's saying, hey, you know, I might have to, you know, I might be killed. So what she does is uh, retreat into her inner power. She uses inner, you know, her own internal power. She steps back into the shadows and asks all to fast for her for three days. And she and her handmaidens and the rest of the Jews in uh, Susa, which is the capital of Persia, will fast for Queen Esther. Now, that's a real yin kind of thing where uh, it's much more about passive resistance, for one thing, um, stepping back and retreating in the face of this yang, in the face of this uh, that, you know, may turn out to be danger, uh, and then muster up internal power. And that's then where we get this sense of balance and integration. So, yes, there's the fear, like Jen was talking about, you know, that leads to yang uh, and um, And then, you know, she's going to, like, retreat and sort this out. Um, So so we have that as as her first step of strategy. Now, in the Josephus version, which I kind of like, no other version says that when she then gets herself together and people say, are you really going to do this? And um, um, she issues her iconic statement If I perish, I perish. And so she's reached the point. um, And on our yin scale, accepting realities, being willing to let go of certain realities, certainly some foreshadowing to the Savior, um, saying, you know, I give my life for my friends, as well as Christ's teachings around when you lose yourself, you find yourself. And so... Here she is. I mean, this is the ultimate yin, in my opinion, statement of this drama. So then this fasting also creates a type of Zion, if you will, one heart, one mind, and notwithstanding that they end up in the end becoming uh, violent because they're given permission to kill those people who are unjustly, you know, unjust oppressors toward them. Um, n- nevertheless, <clears throat> uh, what happens after this big time of fasting, then she gets herself together. If I perish, I perish. And she goes into the king. Josephus says that she looked at him in his regalia. And um, in, in the words of uh, that version, then she saw him in his regalia. And then he had kind of a stern look. And she just like passed out and fainted. And um so um at that moment then that mobilized yin energy in the king to come and comfort her and uh, he became solicitous and he was worried he didn't want to lose her and um and so that changed the whole equation from this yang yang yin you know and then uh and then her fainting. Now from a neuroscience perspective, I always like anytime I have a chance to Put in a little word for the fact that on the uh, continuum of nervous system regulation and dysregulation, um, we have the old age old fight, flight, freeze response to danger. And humans have some of that going on, you know, in our brains as well. So this would be considered the freeze response to danger. Um, And it often then happens um uh-huh. when a person is being held captive in some sort of way or an animal has been held captive. So um, he becomes solicitous. He, you know, they, they attend to her. Uh, and then at that point, from her own sense of intuition, again, this is on the, on our, on our yin scale uh, on her sense of intuition, she can see that there's this opportunity to now move into a leadership role. He's saying, you know, what's your request? What's your request? Um, and so he's, you know, anxious and curious about this. And um, so the fact that she now um, has kind of turned these tables of, of leverage and influence, um, then I consider that, you know, a type of, of yang, you know, where then she kind of takes the bull by the horns and she says, okay, this is what I want. Uh, and so um there's going to be two banquets and um the first banquet she's not going to actually give her request and so we see this kind of slow fast uh again you know working together first um it's slow she's going to like uh you know kind of meet out this in stages and um and so they they hold a banquet um and The king says, you know, tell me what, you know, what is your wish here? What, you know, I can give you half of my kingdom, whatever. Um, And she said, well, you know, I'd like to have another banquet tomorrow. And so the pacing of this, I want you to kind of look at that as, again, this yin and yang in combination. She's not just going to like jump, you know, and start begging him to save her people. Um, she's kind of, you know, staying in his good graces there, you know, she, he's drinking a lot, maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, and so she's looking, you know, at, um, at re reading the situation and using her own intuition to kind of create this plot. Uh, and so, um, sure enough during the night between the first and the second banquet, the king is also sort of, um mobilized has some sleeplessness kind of like cyrus the great did um and um and he's reminded about how mordecai saved him from assassination so uh in the morning then and during the second banquet then he comes sort of remembering you know and wanting to kind of honor mordecai and to give mordecai his just dues um, so nothing could be you know a better environment now for Esther to say, oh, I want you to consider changing the the edict on my people. And she comes out. So basically, I'm Persian. These are my people. The uh, decree says that all of us should be killed. And so I'm here, you know, to uh, plead the case for myself and my people. Uh, And so then we see, you know, both the pacing of this and how, then she took a breath you know first she fasted then even after she had the attention of the king she kind of stepped back took a breath how about coming back to dinner tomorrow and let's just you know uh think think this thing through and uh whether she was getting up the courage we don't know you know but um but that second banquet then she becomes more direct more assertive not aggressive but she continues to respect the status of the king while also then laying out the plight of the Jews and Haman's evil plan. And so there's um, really, I think, a balance here because Yang can be about protection and values, according to that one chart that we looked at. Um, and so she's now, on behalf of her people, protective and directive. And that's, you know, that would be on the the Yang uh, part of it, and the yin part of it is that t- the sense of timing, the sense of uh, you know unrolling this in kind of a, a slow way and having a say about how the events unfold. So then the third stage of this it's not another banquet, but um, but she then tearfully it says in the scripture, um, then also pleads with the king to reverse that decree. So it's not enough just to punish Haman and to elevate Mordecai, uh, but there's this decree hanging out there. There's a policy that throughout all of Persia. And so she's still um, in you know, a mode of being humble and, be, and, and respecting the power of the king uh, to, uh, and then the requesting that he use his power to reverse uh, the decree And so he does go from being kind of this nasty guy, see, to to being uh, influenced by the way Esther has sort of orchestrated this process. And um, so then she continues to be empowered and taking charge in various ways, uses her leverage, um, you know, in a respectful way. And and again, then still has uh, the emotion where she's now reached the point for herself of doing this on behalf of other people. And um, she is no longer, you know, worried about her own death, but she's made that transition also into then um, staying sort of single-mindedly related to the dangers of her people and uh, what she can do to influence the king. So we have, see, her emotion through the tears, her intuition about how to influence him, that's all yin, and then the direct and the protective and the principled which is the yang. And to have that all you know come together in this story, I think is uh, pretty masterful. Um, now, <clears throat> I know we're going way over time. I'm going to do just a, a little modern day example of this yin and yang as well uh, before we leave. And it happens to be um, the privilege that I had to conduct a three-hour interview with Jan Quinn Carter. She's the ex-wife, of D. Michael Quinn, and while we enjoyed all the gifts that he had to give us while he was on the earth, um, probably we didn't think that we were enjoying his gifts at the expense of his wife, ex-wife, and children. And so we have them to thank for many of the gifts that we enjoyed. And um, she said no one has ever asked to interview her, and I asked her if she would let me, and so we had a three-hour interview, and she's given me permission to just read a couple of paragraphs. And it has to do with her own healing process as she went through this tremendous tumultuous time where Mike was excommunicated <clears throat> with the uh, um, September 6th and, um, um, and then just um, everything that came after that that uh, just sent their family into turmoil. And so let me just quickly read... Um, a few paragraphs of her healing process. I did not want a divorce. I was determined to keep my temple marriage and determined to keep the family determined like, you know, absolutely, absolutely. It had to look a certain way. And uh, I fasted and prayed. I was losing weight. I was close to a total collapse. And my poor kids, they absolutely lived with a father who wasn't very emotional and a mother who was close to total collapse. And so we moved to Missoula, Montana, and Rattlesnake Creek ran through um, a spot that was only uh, a little short walk from our home. And there was a little place where I would go and meditate, again, okay? obviously. Um, I would go down there and just spend hours. I can't tell you how many hours, hundreds of hours, hundreds, she says. Through all of this, I also shifted. I found books and writings of people that started to speak to me. And I realized that you can look at a situation, but there are multiple layers, at least five layers. And you have to go way deep to get down to the real truth, the bottom, bottom, bottom truth of any situation. But that is the soul truth. And that is where truth stops. So I fasted and prayed, fasted and prayed, fasted and prayed. And I had no idea what sort of book I happened to be reading at the time. But all of a sudden, just as clear as words, the answer came one day. Let go. Just let it go. Let it all go. Let go. Because no matter what the answer seemed to be before then, it was more of the same that brought pain. And I just wanted that pain to go away. It was so painful. And the answer came let go so in letting go i knew exactly what it wasn't the answer i had no idea what to replace it with it took years to rebuild years but they were i have to say the most adventurous years the most personally self-discovering years about me it wasn't about mike i mean it was because he was part of this picture for so long but it was really about rebirthing literally rebirthing myself. Now, I consider that a modern day case study and integration with the yin and the yang moving to Missoula, um, meditating, finding her own internal answer. uh, And and it happened to come then in the form and in the concept of really rebirthing herself, remaking herself and going through that integrative process. And so on behalf and honoring Jan and her generous uh, um, uh, gift uh, to us to share her healing process, um, and as a little shout out to my Persian branch um, members, I'd like to um, close with a couple of Persian chants. now, these are adaptations from the Persian beloved poet, Rumi. Uh, this is compliments of Thomas McConkey's Lower Lights Meditation Sanghas, and the music is by Kate Day. <clears throat> when was I ever made less by dying? I'm in the ocean and the ocean's in me. When was I ever made less by dying? I'm in the ocean and the ocean's in me. And we chant this over and over. And the idea is that it brings a sense of community and connection, that we chant this together and feel the energies that are shared as we go through this chant. So again, looking at the internal energy of the yin and looking at restoring that, then we see these various parts of Jan's story, of Esther's story, uh, creating creativity out of thin air, um, really out of fainting in front of the king, and for Jan, out of meditating hundreds of hours, Um, the emotion and intuition that came to fruition and all of that, Um, the sense of flow and dynamism, you know, in the pacing and the time that it took these women in each of their uh situations guided by their hearts having the courage to face their inner demons uh if i perish i perish you know uh and uh and then being able to see not with their eyes but see possibilities that at the time were invisible but could be felt could be known through you know that yin energy um and uh um, and then letting go of the old we look at uh both esther and jan And then the fact that death, rebirth and transformation leads to more creation. And so uh, as a reprise of of Margaret Toscano, again, looking at some of her wisdom, the most demanding is that Zion can be achieved. It can't be achieved in isolation, but must be worked out in relationship. The outer self, the inner self, the outer reality, the inner reality other people, and God, that integrative phase of wholeness, um, where then we have a balance of both and all of these types of energies. <clears throat> and so on that note, a little nod to uh, the spirit of Zion. This is another adaptation of Rumi. And in fact, um, the actual poem um, after they after he says wanderer worshiper lover of leaving the actual poem says um we are no caravan of despair even if you've broken your vows a thousand times come come yet again come 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 whoever you are wanderer worshiper lover of leaving We are no caravan of despair. Come, come, yet again come. Come, come, yet again come. And with that, I leave you my thoughts about Zion and the restoration of a holy balance. As Margaret said, though the emergence of such a theology does not appear imminent, the rumor of it cannot be denied. And I leave you these thoughts in the name of Jesus Christ, he who was sent by balanced people as their greatest creation of holiness and integration. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Who I... Would love to have some discussion. Thank you very much, Suzanne. In the, I think we, at this point, we'll call on Jen, uh, for closing prayer and and wrap this lesson with your with your closing words. Thank you.
0: I am newly um, without language for prayer, but as Anne of Green Gables said, um, I like to feel prayer. Um, but I'm going to attempt to borrow from other traditions in this prayer. And I'm recalling one of my favorite quotes from Rumi, um, beyond, beyond ideas of right doing and wrongdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. And a youth prayer says, treat the earth well. It was not given to you by your parents. It was loaned to you by your children. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Hmm. The Zoroastrian prayer says, May my family and friends live happy and healthy and long. May they live for a thousand years. I praise good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. I praise righteousness. Righteousness is the best. The gift of the good mind leads to Ahura Mazda. A master gives authority to the one who protects the oppressed. And I say this in my, I say this with my heart and in connection to the divine. Thank you. And in community with you. So I'm a work in progress. <laughs> You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at DialogueJournal.com slash podcasts.
1: Dialogue Podcast Network.